I am one of that most pitiful of God's creatures, a people pleaser. Are there any other people pleasers out there? You're not just raising your hands to please me, are you? <laughs> and you know what I've found about people pleasing? Uh, first of all, it's impossible. Uh, you can never make everyone happy all of the time. Secondly, it's exhausting uh, because it means that you're often chasing after not only things that are unattainable, but sometimes things that aren't even worth as much as you thought they would be. You finally get what you were looking for and you realize, man, that, that was not worth it. I've also found that uh, people-pleasing uh, makes me kind of like one of my professors in college who once told me, I have a general dislike of people. You ever feel like that? It's just so much pressure to live up to everyone's expectations all the time. So much pressure to make everyone happy all the time. And I think very few people can live all of their lives long doing that. And I don't think anyone can live all of their lives long being happy and content and joyful when they feel like my job is to make everyone around me happy all the time. People-pleasing stinks. And I think that points us, as a matter of fact, to the psalm that we have in front of us today. See, uh, being, having the job that I do, being a pastor, people-pleasing is not only something that uh, I do personally. It's not just about my personality. It kind of sometimes comes with the territory of being a pastor. You feel like, you know, I- I'm doing all of these abstract sorts of things, right? I don't have a job where I go out and I, I, when I'm done, there's a beautiful yard, Right? And you can say, I'm done. I did it. It's, it's great. It's wonderful. I have a job where you go out and you, you, you throw seed at people and you hope some of them will, will take root somewhere and start to grow. And you may not see the fruit of what you've done for not just a week, you know, not just months, not even just years. It may be a lifetime or you may never know at all the kind of impact that you've had on people. And a lot of you have a similar experience in your life and the jobs that you've had and the relationships that you have. You keep pouring your heart and your energy and your love into the people around you and it feels like it's not making a difference. That they're still sad and miserable or, or they're still struggling with the bad choices that they've made or they don't return that love to you. You have a job maybe in the medical profession one way or another, and you tell people this is how you be healthy, and they come back to you next week or next month or next year, and they're still not healthy. And you know why? They're not taking your good advice. Now, to be fair, a lot of doctors struggle to take their own advice as well, don't they? It's hard uh, to be healthy, especially for some of us more than others. But we all know what this is like, this sense of I'm trying to accomplish something good, trying to do something good, trying to live a life of value, trying to live a life of purpose, and feeling like it never quite comes back to us in the way that we would like. And we start to feel this sense of futility, coloring the way that we look at the world, coloring the choices that we make. That's not the only way we feel, I know. But I think if each one of us looks into our own heart, we'll find at some point we've experienced that. I've done everything I can, and it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. 
what we really need is a new perspective, I think, on who we're supposed to be, on the world that we live in, and in the God who created us. And I think that's what Psalm 115 does for us. I think it changes that perspective. I think it says you don't have to continue to be a people pleaser. You don't have to continue to feel like your work comes back to you empty. You can feel like I live a life of meaning and value and purpose. I think Psalm 115 gives us that attitude. Now, before I jump into the psalm, I want to remind you of the series that we're in. We're in a series on the Hallel Psalms, the praise psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 comprise the Hallel Psalms. And these are the psalms that the Jews, uh, I believe, still sing at the end of the Passover. Actually, all during the Passover celebration. Some at the beginning of the meal and some at the end of the meal. And one of the reasons why this is significant for us today is because the last meal that Jesus ate before he went to the cross was the Passover meal. These are the last songs that Jesus sang before his death and before his resurrection. And I think that understanding that helps us understand something of who we ought to be in our lives, something of who we can be in our lives. Jesus, as he looked forward to the greatest trial of his life, was praising God in these ways. Well, I love the way Psalm 115 starts out, and I think this is really the key for us to understand how do we get that perspective that teaches us how to live, not as frustrated and unfulfilled people, but as people of real purpose and of real value who find real satisfaction in life. And it starts off this way, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. You know, being a people pleaser, one of the things that, like I said, I've got kind of this abstract sort of job where you don't always see what happens. And so one of the indicators that maybe you did something well is when people say, hey, pastor, nice sermon. Or like yesterday, I got to tell you, weddings are rough on pastors. Okay, I'm not telling you this so that you won't come to me to marry you or something like that. But just weddings are rough on pastors because the stress level is very high and the reward level in a lot of senses is very low. Right, Your job is just to get them up there, get them married without messing anything up and then get out of there as fast as you possibly can. Although sometimes we get to party with the people too, and that's fun. Yeah, that's right. And so there is something in you that wants to know that you did a good job at the end of the the ceremony. right? You want people to come up and say, Pastor, that was a good job. It was such a great wedding ceremony and all of that. But there are a couple of things that you, you also have to remember as a pastor at a wedding. Number one is, it's not about you, Pastor. It's about the people who are getting married. Number two, having a successful ceremony is not borne out in whether or not people like what you did, but in the relationship of the people who make the promises. And that comes from the fact that it's not about you, doesn't it? See, not to, not to us, Lord. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. 
It's not about these short-term successes, and it's not about making people feel good immediately or for a limited amount of time. You know what I find is that I preach every week, and every week I wonder, was that any good? And every week, you know, people thankfully encourage me by saying, thank you, pastor, or that was a good message, pastor, or something along those lines. And then, of course, you wonder, well, did I actually deserve that, or were people just being polite? But that's, I digress. But the real point is that if we're looking for this sort of short-term satisfaction, that was a great wedding ceremony, Pastor. That was a really good doctor's appointment you ran, Doctor. That was a, a, a really great lesson you gave, Teacher, or whatever it is. We're unsatisfied as soon as the next lesson comes along, aren't we? We're now wrapped up again, and gosh, I hope I'm going to be adequate. I hope it's going to be okay. I I hope that I'm going to do a good job. I hope that people will like me. I hope that people will be pleased with what I've given today. It's like running in circles over and over again. Does anyone feel like their life is sometimes just running in circles? The same things, day in, day out. And you're just hoping for a good result day in and day out. And some days you get the good result, and some days you don't get the good result. And it feels like running in circles. But something different happens when you change your attitude from not, you, 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 become, you gain this attitude of not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. You know, in the midst of COVID and in the midst of a changing culture that you know, doesn't uh, treat Christianity the same way that it did before, I'm not up here whining and moaning about it. It's the reality of the world and the way that it is. And in some ways, you know, uh, we haven't always been good Christians and we deserve some of the criticism that comes out. So please understand, I'm not saying people are persecuted in the world, but not so much here. Let's get some perspective, Right. Is anyone here in danger of dying because you came to church today? I put my hand down. We're not. Is anyone in here going to lose their job because they came to church today? Is anyone here going to be ostracized from society because they came to church today? Now, some people might grumble about you or look down on you. We're just not that persecuted. We're just not in that bad a position But even in these days, there are still sometimes things we hear that are frustrating and hurtful because we're Christians. Christians are are hateful, right? They're bigoted. Like, no, do you know us? Because we sure don't think we are. Not perfect. We mess up. But that's not who we are. And when that happens, I, I remind myself, these people who are speaking to me are not my judge. God is my judge. God is my judge. He's the one who gets to say good job or bad job. But there is a flip side to this at the same time, isn't there? It's not just how do I respond when people insult me. It's also how do I respond when people give me praise. Thank you, because it's meaningful. It's valuable. But ultimately, who is my judge? God is my judge. That's altogether better and more incredibly terrifying. Because God doesn't just see what I do. He sees what I think. He sees what I feel. He knows the motives behind it. He knows when I'm up here glory-seeking. And he knows when I'm up here saying, Oh, God, this is going to be terrible today. 
and need your help so badly. I just want these people to know you. He knows that in your job. He knows that in your retirement. He knows that in your relationship with your spouse and with your children and with your parents. God is your judge. It's not about us at the end. That's a little scary, though, isn't it? Because we're afraid we'll get lost if it's not about us. Because that's what happens with human beings, isn't it? You know, one of the hardest things that I find is I'm so grateful to so many people for all the things they do at the church. Sometimes they're just part of the mission of the church, right? To, we're all working together to serve Jesus, to show the world who he is, you know, to, to love those who feel unloved, to, sur- to uh, supply those who are unsupplied. But sometimes we're doing it for each other too, right? Uh, a few years ago, well, recently, I said, gosh, you know, that music stand at church is uh, not a great place to put all my notes. And I came in a week or two later, and I had this new, I still don't know who brought it up here. It was just somebody being nice and good. And I think we're afraid we'll lose that if it's not about us at the end, right? If we say, not, if, you know, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, we're afraid that God will, will treat us like human beings do, who sometimes forget to say thank you. That's another one of my great fears. So many people do so many good things, and I can't remember all of them so that I can say thank you to each and every one. Some good deeds go unthanked and unloved, don't they? I, I, I don't hope for anyone to not receive gratitude, but I hope that someone out there understands what I'm talking about, that I'm not just a horrible person who doesn't remember to thank everybody. Not to us. We're afraid that we'll get lost in the shuffle. And that's why there's more to the psalm. That's why the psalm doesn't just end with the first verse. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Praise the Lord, amen. No, the psalm continues. It says, I want to skip actually a little bit farther along to verse 9. It says, all you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. And if we want to get theological for a moment, let me tell you that these lines aren't just about the people who lived in the past. They're about you, all of you God's people. That's what Israel refers to. All of you God's people, trust in the Lord. He is your help and and your shield. House of Aaron, those of you who are servants of the Lord, who are out on the front lines telling people about Jesus in our case, trust the Lord because he is your help and your shield. All of you who fear him. Isn't that a strange thing to toss in there, especially to us in the 21st century because we think all fear is bad all the time? All of you who fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, understanding who God is, that he is bigger and greater and more wonderful, and that when you are encountered with someone who is so much more than you, did you notice in the Bible, every time this happens, no one's like, hey, God, welcome. Let's shake hands. Like, I got a nice seat for you. Let's come over here. I made a nice meal. It's going to be a great time. Everyone who meets God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament falls down like they're dead. That sounds kind of like fear, doesn't it? 
It's not because God is a scary person who wants to crush people. It's because God is so great that when we come into his presence, well, all of our pretensions to greatness dissolve right there in that moment. Coming into God's prayer. All of you who have met the Lord, trust him. He is your help and shield. See, when we come to God and we say, it's not about us, God. It's about you and your glory because we've met you. We know something about who you are. You are big and wonderful and good in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. What are you really good at? Can you think of something? Let me give you an example here. Think about something. I I am talented at this. Maybe it's music, or maybe it's art, or maybe it's working with your hands on you know repairing uh, motorbikes and uh, uh, cars. Maybe it's some interpersonal thing. I'm just good with people. I want you to think about that. Do you start to define yourself in that way at all? Like I, am, I am Ian. I am the person who loves public speaking and occasionally is good at it. And what happens when you meet someone who is so much better than you? You ever had that experience? A musician who, you know, you are like, man, I can play pretty well. And then you meet this musician, you're like, I am nothing next to that person. Or you're out doing your public speaking and you hear some pastor on the radio and you're like, man, I gave that sermon last week and my sermon stunk compared to that guy's. Or you're a doctor and you struggle to diagnose a patient and you call on the expert and he gets it just like that. Like it's no problem. Whatever it is, that kind of hurts, doesn't it? kind of feels like I, I thought I was somebody because I was good at that. And now that I've met this person, I realize I'm nobody at all. See, that's our natural reaction sometimes to meeting God. Understanding that, hey, I thought I was pretty great, but now that I've met God, I understand what greatness is really like and how far away I am. But when that happens, God doesn't throw us away. He doesn't say, that's right, I'm better. He says, don't worry about it. You know why? Because I am your help and your shield. That's what I'm here for. I'm not here to rub your face in the fact that you're not as great as you thought you were. I am here to be great for you. God has tied up his glory with our good. That's a theme of my preaching here. Have you heard me say that before? We should make this a thing we do every week. God has tied up his glory with our good. Who else does that? Who else does that? Who else throws a party about their greatness that is really about your good? But that's who God is. See, and we can trust him in the midst of this. We can can be safe. Not just safe, but we can thrive when we say it's not about me, God. It's about you. Because God returns that to us by being our help and our shield. Now, 
Let's go back in the passage just a little bit, starting off at verse 2. It says, why do the nations say, where is their God? Why would the nations say that? Because it looks like God's people are in trouble. It looks like God's people have lost. If we look at the history of Israel, it's because Israel was conquered by their enemies, because the people were carried off into slavery in different countries. And all the people said, well, where is your God? What's so great about your God? What can he do for you? You're in slavery in another country. But God's people respond by saying, well, our God is in heaven. And first of all, that doesn't mean he doesn't care about the things that are happening on the earth. Because elsewhere, the scripture reminds us that our God is in heaven. And he does whatever he wants in heaven and on earth. Remember the Tower of of Babel in the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis? The people of earth were building this great tower. And they're like, if we do this, we'll be able to do anything. And it says that God appeared down from heaven. He says, what is it that they're doing down there? I can't see it. I need a closer view. We think we're in charge and we're doing all these great things. And yet God is saying, that's so tiny. (laughs) That's cute. Neat. See, God's purposes are bigger than our present. God doesn't lose the present in the midst of that, but his purposes are bigger than our present. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He says, but all you people who think you're in charge, you conquerors who have carried us off to a strange land, let's talk about your gods. You made them out of silver and gold. Somebody fashioned them. They have mouths, uh, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but can't hear. Noses, but can't smell. I mean, it goes on and on, doesn't it? Hands, they cannot feel. Feet, cannot walk. They can't utter a sound with their throats. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. You know, I, I had somebody once, a few years ago, came to the church, and we, uh, we had our, our confession of faith, our statement of faith, before we took communion. And it was probably the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. You know, a creed the church has used for literally thousands of years. And, uh, and they said, you know, I, I enjoyed the service, people pleaser. I enjoyed the service, uh, but, uh, you know, that was hard. I was like, I don't know if we all believe that stuff. And there's a spirit, I think, in, in our world today that says, hey, we've got to, uh, first of all, we've got to figure it all out on our own. Right? We've got all these great and wonderful tools. We really do have great and wonderful tools to explore and understand our world. But then there's this sense of, you know, I, we have to go and test every claim and understand everything that's going on and buy it for ourselves. So we can't make these statements of faith. Like we can't say, well, the church through history has believed these things. We need to re-verify them and test them to see if they're true. You know, in part, because frankly, we're kind of snobby when we look back and we think, those idiots, like they did all, they didn't even have a wheel. Like we've got wheels everywhere. We're so smart. There's this great scholar in the 20th century, uh, Rudolf Bultmann, and he, he said, you know, we live in the age of the electric light bulb. We can't go on believing in this Jesus who does things like raise the dead. We're too smart for that. You know what, folks? We live in the age of the LED. Bultmann impressed with the light bulb. Every generation looks back to the next and says, what boneheads. Look at how they had to live. And see, it's not actually about how smart we are. It's about how arrogant we are. See, we make our own gods. 
We make our own gods. We say we have to sort all of this out on our own. There's a big problem with that. If we make our own gods, our gods will never be bigger than we are. They'll always be human-sized. And if we have human-sized gods, it's the Greeks who got it right. Do you remember the ancient Greek myths? Remember those? Tell me, were the gods nice or mean? They were mean. You know, one of the great contributions to Christianity in the Western world is that from a Christian perspective, from a Judeo-Christian perspective, there's a sense that the world that we live in makes sense because God is bigger than we are, because he's different than we are, he's other than we are. It's not a human being running the show. It's an entirely different sort of being to begin with. Because if you believe in the Greek gods, if you believe in human-sized gods who just do whatever they feel like when they wake up each day, then the world doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Look at how we're running the world right now. Does it make a lot of sense? No. But that's the thing about our God. He's not someone we invented. He's someone we've met along the way. And I understand if, if this is going to be hard to grasp uh, if you are outside of the Christian faith. If you haven't met Jesus yourself. You know, my favorite thing about, about the stories in the Gospels, Jesus and the disciples, i got to wrap this up, but let me, let me go here, is how the disciples never knew what was going to happen next. Every moment they think they had Jesus figured out, he did something that utterly shocked and surprised them. This is best illustrated by the story of, of Jesus asking his disciples, uh, who, who do people say I am? And the disciples said, well, some say a prophet, and you know, others say, you know, Elijah. There are all kinds of things out there, Jesus. Jesus says, okay, but who do you say that I am? You remember Peter, Simon Peter, his response is, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, this is so, congratulations to you, Peter. Blessings to you, Peter, because this hasn't been revealed to you by your own thought process, by any other man. God has shared this with you. And Peter is feeling great about himself. This is so good. I'm so smart. I got it right. You know what the next story is in most of the Gospels? Jesus says, okay, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, never. And Jesus says, get behind me, who? Satan. Because Jesus was bigger than Peter's understanding, bigger than his perspective, bigger than anything he had met before. And everything Jesus proposed to do was so out there. No one could have made him up. No one could have made him up. That's why Jesus died alone on the cross. Because everyone thought there's no way God's son comes to earth to die for us. And yet we need to rediscover this, don't we? Because it's, it becomes common for us. We, we get used to the idea. Well, of course Jesus would come and die on the cross. That's what God sent him to do. But what if we were reading that story for the first time? I mean, it'd be shocking, wouldn't it? I know it would be, because look at how we're trying to solve the problems of the world today. Who's going to the cross? 
and who is strapping on their sword. Even Christians are strapping on our swords, aren't we? And thank God for Peter, who the moments before Jesus went to the cross, the moment when he was arrested, drew a sword and fought. Because it reminds us, okay, God knows. God knows you don't know what you're doing. And he can still make something out of you, just like he made something out of Peter. If we want to be people who aren't forever unsatisfied, people who feel like we're going around in circles all the time, we need to change our perspective from how can I build meaning and value in my own life to how can I give God the glory. And we can do this because God has tied up his glory with our good. He is our help and shield. That's what he uses his glory for. We can do this because we need to recognize that there are no other good solutions out there. There's nothing else that can save. Idols with ears that cannot hear, noses that cannot smell, that are good for nothing, and those who trust in them will become like them, good for nothing. And once the psalmist has shared all of this with us, he gives us his benediction, his blessing. May the Lord cause you to flourish. Both you and your children. Isn't that good to know in these days when the future feels uncertain? May the Lord give your children a future. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven.